Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Fellas, how's your beach bod treating you? Because Manscaped is here to ensure that your post-quarantine body... Oh, look at that. I can see Brooksy waving his Manscaped uh, lawnmower around. Careful what you say there, Greggy. <laughs> For people listening to this. <laughs> um, don't be the guy at the beach with a bear rug on your chest. And if you grew some quarantine mantis, the least you can do is make sure they're hairless. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off the free worldwide shipping with code BARMYARMY at manscaped.com. Um, Brooksy, you're still a, a keen user of yours. Uh, by the Big time. Do you like it? It can doubles up the torch type thing as well. You're never gonna, never gonna miss a spot with that one, are you? <laughs> are you yeah, I do, mate. Better, are you one of the better groomed men in the Somerset dressing room? Um, I don't know. We don't get to shower anymore, so we don't get to have a look. Oh, what's the point anymore? <laughs> what's the point in cricket? It's always the best thing about showering, wasn't it? Uh, games, <laughs> cricket, showering together. But, uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, it, I, it's not even a plug. I generally use it semi-regularly. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. Wow! If this and podcast has brought you one thing, it's a well-groomed bod. I'm so proud of that. Yeah, well-groomed ferret. <laughs> well-groomed <laughs> ferret. What? Well, um, what about yourself, Chris? I mean, because the last time that we, um, well, basically, I mean, we'll be we'll admit it. Plug Manscaped on our podcast. The um, there was basically a discussion about whether we'd had any nicks. Or blood bats. Mm. Since you have acquired the Manscaped lawnmower, any nicks or blood bats? No, fortunately not. The only thing I nick is a cricket ball Saturday <laughs> afternoons. But um, <laughs> hey, bring it back to base camp. But no, I I must admit, Greggy, it does um it does save the body and, and everywhere else from any unfortunate discomforts whilst trying to make yourself look nice, ready for the summer, ready for your little nice trip to um to the Yorkshire Dales or wherever you go with your top off nowadays, James. It's <laughs> that the most exotic place you could think of? <laughs> well, it, yeah, right about now. I was thinking that or Blackpool. I don't really know where, where's better. Where, where can you travel to? Oh, you can go anywhere. Blackpool's yeah. nothing yet. The, the one thing that I haven't managed to do yet is eat my dinner off it, though. I know that that's, that's, a, that's one thing that you were quite... Um, honest about before making sure that you're, you're groomed enough to eat your dinner off is that still the you, case yeah well, it depends Greggy or yourself yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was a question it was a question um i mean i, I mean i've got to be honest my standards have slipped somewhat um on that on that front um and actually i mean look, look you know you guys know there was some videos on our barmy army social media page when we went around uh, sri lanka and me and chris walking along the beach and uh, I had like the worst, the worst rug in the world, like really bad, like bodily hair, like shocking. You know, if you're on the beach and it's going on Instagram to like hundreds of thousands of people, you know, you kind of want it to look in good shape. But I had like a really bad cricket watcher's tan and a really bad rug. But, you know, suffice to say, I have tried to keep on top of it a little bit more, actually. And this one, by the way, also, you don't have to just go clean off with this new one that Manscaped have got, the Lawnmower 3.0. You can sort of adjust 
the settings, you know, so you can, you know, if you don't want it all off and just want like a bit of a, a layer. You're a proper critter under that. It was like, oh yeah, it's terrible. It's really bad. It's like, you know, porn star, 70 porn star. I need, to, I, need, I need to get on it, on it don't I really? You are a real man. Yeah. What I loved was the, um, was, would have to be the crop preserver, the ball deodorant, the anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturising. Very important for these hot days when you're playing cricket. Got to get them on. <laughs> to be fair, we were in the pub, weren't we, the night, Chris, and uh, your missus did say, that ball toner, that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember that. Oh, wow. So good. All right. Yes. So good. Go out and buy. Let's get out and buy. So the perfect package 3.0 kit comes with the essential lawnmower <laughs> and the crop cleanser and all your ball toner and the crop reviver and all that kind of stuff as well. And you can also get um, a limited, uh, for a limited time, you can get uh, two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag um, and also the painted high-performance reduced shaping manscaped boxes. We've got a pair of them, lads, haven't we? And they're nice. That's, yes. Don't shape in them. Don't shape in them. Uh, so you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code BARMYARMY at manscaped.com. Do yourself a favour and always use the right tools for the job. Hello and welcome to the Shackles Are Off podcast. This is a new mini series for you. I know we've been away for a little while, but things have just been bumbling away nicely under the surface. We've actually been busy recording a few really good episodes for you. So over the next few weeks, look out for David Gower, Danny Wyatt, Callum Flynn as well, and a couple more legends to come. And this one is to kick things off. This is Sir Andrew Strauss. Yes, he is an absolute legend. He's a really nice bloke. Well, I've never spoken to him before, guys, but he was top, top draw. Um, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk actually a little bit about him um, just to start things off before we actually get into the pod. Because as you know, it's also the start of the England Test Series against uh, India. Really exciting, particularly after that uh, winter series, which was just well, it looked like it was going to be an absolute cracker at the start. It kind of petered out a little bit, didn't it? As it always does in India, just a little bit too good at home. But um, yeah, Straussy, he was awesome. I know you you know him fairly well, Chris. Actually, you sort of got a bit of a partnership going with the Barmy Army and the Ruth Strauss Foundation. Uh, Brooksy, I didn't realise you, you played for the same club as him, uh, albeit not at the same time because he's a little bit more old. Well, he's not that much older than you, is he? I, well, I don't know how old how old is he now. Early forties, mid forties. Not yeah. sure. Yeah, he, he went to pretty boring story, probably, but he went to school at Bradley College in Oxfordshire. Um, I didn't. I went to a little state school um, but playing for Oxford Cricket Club in Oxfordshire uh, in the minor counties, and I ended up following that route maybe 10 years later, how many years it was. Um, so a similar route. Obviously, I didn't quite get to the England status and captain of my country level he did, but um, yeah, he's a legend, isn't he? I, I didn't actually cross past him too much in county cricket because he was playing for England quite a lot at the beginning of my career in Skippering. I remember playing against him at Northants to the county ground and I bought a lovely little nit backer and I uh, thought of Adam LBW appealing thinking I got the England captain out and uh, the umpire gave it not out and I was like is it a prerequisite that England captains don't get given out LBW in county cricket I don't know but um, it'd be nice <laughs> probably why he didn't get picked <laughs> 
Yeah, we're going off like that. Come on, Brooksy. Solid bloke. Yeah, solid bloke. Really solid bloke. Um, yeah, so he's, he's the start of the uh, England Test Summer. First match at Trembridge. But as we put this out, you'll probably listen to it sort of as the test has already started. However, Chris, um, looking forward to it because it's like basically a full kind of Barmy Army presence in the ground and it's going to be an exciting uh, match anyway um, and series. But how good is that going to be in terms of actually like a full presence? I know Edgebaston against New Zealand was like pretty special. It was one of the first government pilots events, wasn't it, where everyone else was still basically stuck at home and there was still 16,000, 17,000 in Edgebaston. But how much are you looking forward to it from your, you know, from the Barmy Army perspective? Yeah, like a kid at Christmas. I think everyone who is in the Barmy Army, but also the wider cricket community, has had a taste for it earlier on the Test cricket again with the Edgebaston Test, the, the government pilot, as you said. But there's nothing like a juicy five Test series to get your teeth into. No doubt there'll be some niggle. There'll be a, there'll be a fallout of some form between the teams, and you know that it's going to be a roller coaster. August September of Test match cricket, and I think um, I'm I'm not the only person that's very very excited to see the ebbs and flows and I'm, I've got a quite a confident feeling about this as well. It'd be interesting to hear your opinions as things go on throughout the, the series as we do these podcasts, but I'm quietly confident that we're going to absolutely stuff them. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I've been seeing the, um, on the Barmy Army social media page, actually on Instagram earlier, there was a, a picture of the wicked bridge. <laughs> made me laugh. <laughs> like something that you'd see on like a second team pitch in April, you know, it just looked horrendous, you know, from an Indian perspective. That's what it's all about, though, Brooks. It's what they do. It's what they do when we go over there. They just put big, big bunts and burners on, don't they? So it's only fair that we do the same back over here. In a way, I'm all for it, as long as England do it. People Absolutely. Don't we need to produce, not green nippers that are over in three days, but pitches that favour our True. conditions. Because, um, you know, obviously... Money means a lot, and getting a test match the last five days is important. But as the longer it goes on, it might play into India's hands, you might think. But um, look, we need to bat well all series. I'm backing our bowlers to be all right. Um, it's obviously gutting to see Stokesy pull out. We wish him well, but um, absolutely. Give a chance, and maybe Chris Wokes, Craig Overt, and Ollie Robinson, these guys could come into the equation at some point in the series. But it's going to be a belting series. I can't wait to watch it. I mean, proper test cricket again. Um, I'd like to think England will edge it. I think there'll be a few draws as well. Yeah. Um, the conditions we've had and maybe a bad bit of weather at the back end of September. But I reckon England to win a series or two one maybe. Mm. Right, yeah, that's a good shout. I like that. Good predict. We're, we're doing predictions then. Absolutely. Predictions. You said steamroller him. So what are you saying? Are you saying five nil? All right, Glenn Four nil. We'll lose one to the weather. Yeah, that's a, that's a bit of a given, really, isn't it? Sensible. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, he's not because I've gone full blown Glenn McGrath there, has he? <laughs> Nearly. Very close. But I, what, what, go on, Greggy. What are you having? I think they're going to nick one. I think they're going to nick one. We're going to compare one pitch that's too neutral and they'll they'll go, oh, hello, and they get the sort of tails up and they'll nick a test. But I think 3 1. Well, why don't we roll over the competition that never got one from India? Let's have a top run scorer and a top wicket taker. Fine. I'll get my notes out. I'll take get a note. Notepad. Everyone, all the listeners, we want you to have a go. Get in the comments on wherever you listen to it, on iTunes or on Instagram, on Facebook. Let us know who you think will be the top run scorer and top wicket taker, and we will give away a pair of tickets to next summer for if anyone gets it right. 
right, okay. Um, but, 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 but. Shall I go first? Because I think, oh, I mean, yeah. I, yeah, all you boys go first, don't you, usually? Um, we shall go um, top run scorer. We always, we, we always say Joe, don't we? I'm going to say Joe Root with, I think he's going to get loads. I think we'll go 600. 600 oh. runs. Joe wow. Root, 600 runs. Uh, yeah. Because he, he's all he's he's actually just awesome. He's awesome at home and away. He was so good away, like in the winter, at home, just got his eye in a little bit. Joe Root, six hundred runs, top wicket taker, um, back in the team. Ollie Robinson, I reckon he's going to get he's going to get twenty one, twenty one wickets as a top wicket taker. Yeah, because going to be late. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think five, so. Yeah. Five, five test matches. Oh fuck yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> edit point. Um, you've said it. You've said it, mate. Okay, all right, Sam, right twenty-one. Down. Fine. Ollie Robinson, twenty-one wickets. Brooko. No, you, you go, mate. You go. Okay, this is only the England team, right? We're not doing the Indians. Not bothered about them. Well, it's, if you, it depends if you think they're going to be one of the top run scorers or highest yeah. wicket takers. Not yeah. interested. <laughs> I'm I'm going to go first of all with said ball, mm. James Anderson. Okay. With twenty-seven wickets. Ooh, right. Okay, a lot of poles. Yeah, he's going to play all five tests. He's going to be fit as a fiddle, and he's going to get on a on a plane to Australia, hopefully in a year's time. But we'll see. Um, <laughs> and then with the bat, it's going to be so hard to look past Rooty, isn't it? So mm. hard to look past Rooty, but I don't. Yeah, could it be the coming so- of age? It could be the coming of age for one of the young lads. You don't know. Oh, I'm going to go different both of you just to mix it up and so we don't go similar. Okay. Okay. I'm going to go, go Rooty with 490. Oh, okay, 490. Right, Brooks, I'm h- interested to hear you mixing up here. Well, I'm going to start with the bowling. Um, I'm going to go broad. Okay. I'm going to go five wickets. I just think when he gets on a roll, he's going to steamroll them at some point in at least one or two test matches. Yeah, solid shout. Just want him to play five tests. Hopefully, he'll get through five tests. Um, batting's a bit tricky. Like I don't want to say Rooty because it's the obvious one, and he's going to play every game. And it's what you two have said, and he probably will. Um, and if Stokes he was all there for all five tests, he'd be up there. There's a couple of outside bets. Would be Rory Burns and Bairstow. I think Johnny yeah. might get. And if he keeps his spot. He could end up scoring a lot of runs in the series, and he's like you know, that. like personality-wise, and he mm, becomes like that comes good. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go Bearstow with four ninety. Nice. Okay. Okay. I like that. We like that a lot, don't we? Bearstow like four ninety. Well, there actually, not we've got not the same sure. amount of runs, but oh, different. Um... I'll go four hundred and ten, not four ninety. Oh, okay, okay. Four ten. We're in there. So I've gone Root six hundred, Ollie Robinson twenty one. Low, low on the wicket count. Stupid. Yeah, you're right. Millard twenty seven for wickets for Jimmy and Rooty four hundred and ninety runs. Stuart Broad with twenty five wickets for Brooksy and uh Bearstow scoring four hundred and ten. So if you've got any ideas on that, you can give some tickets away, Chris, like you just said. And um, yeah, send them in. Facebook pages, Instagram tweets. DMs, whatever it is, let us know. We'll, um, if you get it bang on, tickets are yours. But if not, it's ours. Yeah? Like the sound of yeah. that? Love that. 
love that. Cool, cool. And then just before we go, Brooks, you've uh, you've been playing a bit of cricket. You've been playing uh, Royal London One Day stuff, and it seems to have got, got a little bit lost, really, doesn't it, with the with all the hundred and whatnot? But I mean, you your proper cricket fans will be looking at that and enjoying it, and it's still being televised, isn't it, and on the radio and on you know Five Live Sports Extra and that kind of stuff. People loving it. No coverage, but um, yeah, every game's on radio commentary. Um, tell you what, it's been well supported, especially in Taunton. We've sold out. Every home game, yeah. or nearly, you're getting four or five thousand for a fifty over game. We've had a couple of weekend games, which has been great. Um, it's been fantastic, mate. To be honest, um, obviously the hundred has been good to watch, and it's had some real the, the cream of the crop in the country who are available. Um, but the fifty over commas, shown some new faces, um, some local born lads who are doing well for their for their counties. Mm. Some say obviously we. I think we've won three out of four and had one rain off game. So we're undefeated so far. And we've got to go to the Oval uh, on Wednesday to play them, as this has been recorded. Yeah. But yeah, we've um, we've we've played really well, pretty consistent. It's nice to be playing. It's the first time I've played all three formats in a season for years. I couldn't even tell you the last time I did it. Um, yeah, I'm loving yeah. it. Playing regularly. Help, sort of a senior role in the team, helping the young seamers out. Um, so, mate, it's been, it's been cracking. Love that, love that. Well, um, any other business, lads, before we go? Chris, you have something, don't you, before we go and get into um, Andrew Strauss? I do, yes, I do. But on, on Strauss, first of all, what a hero for the Barmy Army. He is an absolute hero, yeah. as you'll hear in the podcast. I won't spoil it, but there aren't many people you give hero legendary status to, but he's definitely one of them. And the work that we're going to be doing with the Ruth Strauss Foundation this year is going to be brilliant. We've got so much in the pipeline, hoping that everything can go ahead as planned and we can raise lots and lots of money throughout the year and um, and show the good work that they're doing and put the money to good use in future months. But before we get into the podcast, I just wanted to give a little plug to our event that we've got running at Aston Rowan Cricket Club in on the 19th of August, where you will see maybe... Jack Brooks, Chris Miller, James Gregg, and a certain Joel Garner <clears throat> playing cricket for the Barmy Army in a Sixers World Cup event, the Fan Sixers World Cup. It's a little bit touch and go if Brooks is going to be playing, but you're certainly going to see some horrible leg spin from from uh, Mr. James Gregg and some dirty slogging from myself. So get yourself down there. It's free entry. The tickets are going fast, though, but you get them at barmyarmy.com. You can find out about the event. It's going to be a great day out. We've got loads of people there, loads of food. Joel Garner's coming down to do a live podcast, the first live Shackles Are Off podcast, so you can come and listen to us down at Aston Rowan Cricket Club and, and have a good crack with us. So hope to see you there. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'm, I'm actually really I'm nervous, but also really looking forward to it at the same time, if that's possible. Just, I mean, yeah. Um, embrace Just embrace it. I'll be fine. Embrace it. Fine. <laughs> I think my last game of cricket was at Newlands, by the way, just saying. <laughs> and we all know what happened there if you listen to this podcast, so we won't go into that. Um, however, um, lads, absolute pleasure. Looking forward to uh, getting into the Straussy podcast. I hope you are as well. And as ever, any correspondence is greatly appreciated. And uh, we've got a few bumper podcasts coming out over the next few weeks. So do stick around. And uh, yeah, let's get into it. He is a legend. Um, he's got a great message as well in this podcast. Um, it's Sir Andrew Strauss here on the Shackle Rock.
first of all, Sir Andrew Strauss, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Shackles Rock podcast. Um, unfortunately, you actually aren't the first night that we've uh, had on the podcast. We've actually had um, Sir Alistair Cook on as well. Oh. Um, so, so sorry, Cookie picked his there. Cookie beats me to everything, doesn't he? <laughs> more runs, more centuries, more matches. I mean, typical. Absolutely typical. Frustrating, frustrating. Yeah. The way that we always start all of our podcasts um, on this on this um, sort of series, we do it with everyone, is basically finding out what your cricketing beginnings were. So, I mean, softball in the back of the garden, that kind of stuff. But also then sort of on from there, when did you actually realise that Sir Andrew Strauss, because he was Sir Andrew when you were 11 <laughs> years old. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, when, when did you realise, when did you realise that a, a career in cricket beckoned? Well, you know what? My, I mean, my first memories of playing cricket um, were bizarrely actually in Australia. So I, my, my family left uh, South Africa when I was six and we went and spent uh, about a year and a half in Melbourne in Australia. Um, and I think that was the first time I lifted a cricket bat. And I remember playing for my school side in, in Oz. Uh, needless to say, you know, the first thing they teach you there is, you know, how to sledge correctly. And so there's a lot of abuse, even at that age, at the age of seven or eight there. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of, I suppose, you know, because I, I just love all sports, really. Um, and cricket was, was just something you did in the summer. And then I got to England um, and, and really played cricket at school. I wasn't one of these kids that was like, my parents were driving me up and down the country and I was playing junior club cricket, uh, county cricket and whatever. I was just playing at school in the summer term and maybe a little bit of club cricket in the holidays. And in between that, playing, you know, tennis and golf and, and rugby and whatnot. Um, and I suppose it was only when I was about sort of 18, I suppose. I went to Durham University and uh, got into the Durham Uni team. And I just sort of looked around me and everyone else in that team had a county contract apart from myself. And that was the time I started thinking, actually, for no other reason that I have a lot of student debts and I need to find some money in the summer, I should really give this a go. And um, uh, one thing led to another. I had a couple of trials at Middlesex. Uh, Got some. I literally had two trial matches. Got runs in both for the the, the county second team. And the next thing I knew, I was a fully sort of paid up uh, professional cricketer. Which uh, you know, I, I had to pinch myself because I'd never really had that. I'd obviously I had like we all do. We have ambitions of being a great sport, you know, professional sports person and and doing amazing things. But up till that point, it, it just hadn't seemed like a reality or or, or even a potential uh, reality for me. And then. Um, you know, once you're part of a system and you're 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 in that sort of pathway, uh, it becomes pretty clear what you need to do to get to the next level. You know, and so you know, I, I like to think I was quite a quick learner and um, sort of forged my own niche at Middlesex and then onto the England team. What What was the most pleasing thing? Paying off your debts or signing the contract? <laughs> no, I felt it was not. It was a nice thing to have like the contract in front. Like yeah, have that. You know that that sort of image in your mind of the, the photographer there with the, you know, the, the middle sets coach and a big name signing. I mean, it wasn't like that at all. They sort of just <laughs> shoved the contract through the post to me, but, um, but, you know, I think that it's interesting because for me, it was like, okay, well, look, I can, I can tell people that I was a professional sportsman now. Uh, and then of course it was like, well, 
you know, I made my first class debut. So I can tell people that I, I played first class cricket. And then obviously you go on and on and then you make your England debut. And there's always that next level, that next sort of rung up the ladder to climb. And, um, and I think that was useful for me, actually. I, a lot of England cricketers, I'm thinking like an Ian Bell or someone who, from the age of 14, 15, he was always sort of earmarked as being this great next England player. And I think that's a huge sort of expectation and burden and pressure to, to carry around with you. And, you know, I'm quite relieved I never really had that as a cricketer growing up. Because you look at you're right with that. Because you look at someone like Will Rhodes or somebody, for, for instance, who's now actually captain in Warwickshire, is a fantastic player in his own right. But he was captain in England junior sides from being, you know, I'm, I'm using him purely as an example, yeah. here, by the way. But you, you, you're looking at him and he's captain in England sides from under 15, the under 19s World Cup. And he's sort of in and around that setup. But then all of a sudden, you know, he's playing for Yorkshire as an all rounder and, and not getting so. Can that sometimes hinder players a little bit with with that kind of always being the best in their age group? And then actually to get into that big, bad world of county championship cricket where you've got people like Darren Stevens bowling and batting against you. And actually, sort of, you know, you've got to step it up again another level, haven't you? It's a completely different step step up. Yeah, and also it's very hard in county cricket to make that jump from county cricket to international cricket because it feels like sometimes it's not necessarily related to how well or otherwise you're doing. It's more related to how's the England team doing and, and what opportunities sort of fall on your lap. So um, it's, especially if you've got big ambitions and you've been sort of earmarked as a future England player, you can get very frustrated and put a lot of pressure on yourself. Um, You know, I, I kind of, I suppose I started scoring runs quite consistently in county cricket. And I, I remember I got made Middlesex captain and, and actually that was a real blessing for me because it was like, you know what, uh, I've just got to focus on captaining Middlesex well now. And I was only 24, so that was it was quite a big challenge for me. And of course, like, you know, as part of the captaincy, you're wanting to lead by example and score runs. And so my focus was more on scoring runs for Middlesex rather than like, if I get a thousand runs this season, I might get in the England team. And um and so that helped me. Uh, I mean, ultimately, at, at one stage or another, you have to deal with the pressure and expectation, you know, and whether that's when you're a young kid coming through or when you're opening the batting in an Ashes Test match and, um, you know, Mitchell Johnson's storm is steaming in at you. That At some stage, you're going to be confronted with that. But um, uh, certainly, I, I felt like by the time I got to that, I'd sort of had enough experience under my belt to be able to handle it reasonably well. You mentioned pressure and expectation there. Can you remember the moment when you received that first England test call up where you were, what you were doing? And can you remember? It's obviously yeah, a blur. What I happened can after. very well because I was on the golf course. Um, <laughs> I mean, you guys will probably remember, but I got called in at the last minute uh, because Michael Vaughan got injured in the nets just before the start of the New Zealand series in 2004. Um, and, uh, I was in great form. I was, you know, I was playing great for Middlesex, and suddenly I got this call up. And I think that's the thing you don't realise is like you don't, you're not in control of when you get called up for England, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, you're kind of waiting. Even if you're next in line, that you could be let next in line for a couple of years. Uh, and it just so happened that I was next in line. I was in great form. Vaughan got injured, and 
you know, David Gravely, the chairman of selectors, said, Straussy, you know, Vaughan is injured, you're in. You're going to make your debut this week. And there I was at Lords, my home ground. And I just felt like the biggest shot to nothing of all time. Like, you know, go out. Uh, I'll probably probably only play one test match for the time being because Vaughan will come back. You know, let's let's go and enjoy it and, and see what happens. And and obviously for me, it was like the all those sort of dr- schoolboy dreams coming true in one go. You know, getting 100 at Lords on debut and proving to myself that I could sort of deal with international cricket. It was, it was the perfect start. And, and quite frankly, things went, all went downhill from there. That was like, <laughs> you can't get much better than that. So good. I, I, you know you know what? Because you, you've been in and around and you've been like knocking on that door and put yourself in a position where it was as soon as anybody was, you were straight in. And that's like, that's an amazing position to be in, isn't it? Knowing that you are coming straight in. It's great that you actually saw it as a free hit as well, effectively. Um, at Lords, playing for England, I'm not sure many people would see it as a free hit. It's just it's such a great mindset to have, though. Um, let's talk about your run out on your debut. NASA took responsibility. Um, for, for, well, sorry, for... you should, Dan. It was the worst <laughs> run I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he, I remember him coming up to me like, uh, you know, we were ch- I can't remember what we were chasing, like 250 odd to win against New Zealand or whatever. And he came up to me um, and went like, I think we just need to up the tempo a bit here um, because I, I feel like we're falling behind the rate. And I, in my mind, I was going, yeah, that's because you've been blocking the shit out of it for the last <laughs> hour and a half. Um but anyway, I said, well, look, you know, don't worry, mate. We've got plenty of time. Just relax. It's all good. Anyway, and then the, and then <laughs> next over, he just hits one straight to point and starts running at me. And I'm like, uh, no. And then by the time by the time I'd sort of registered, he, he's already passed me and I was the uh, sacrificial lamb. So, uh, sure. yeah, it, it was um, – I, I was just – sort of at the end of a very long list of people who have been run out by Nasser Sain. So I was quite happy to just add my name to that list. And um, and obviously, you know, that was ended up being his final innings for England. So, you know, yes, he did, he did brilliantly. You know, he went on and got 101 of the game, which is great. Um, and, um, you know, we were all pleased to see the back of him quite frankly. <laughs> he scored 20 more hundreds after that for England. I mean, you know, when you, I know you said you saw it as a bit of a free hit and you perhaps weren't really allowing yourself to think too far ahead. But I always, I mean, we, we spoke to David Gower last week, we spoke to a few others about this who've kind of gone on and scored a load of hundreds for him, including Ian Bell, actually. And I'm like, what, at what point do you kind of allow yourself to start thinking, right, I'm just going to keep churning these out? Is there, is there a point where you kind of look at these stats and go, well, I've got five now, I'd quite like 10. You know, is that is that kind of how you how you view it, or was there an no, ever? No, look, I mean, I suppose that all these things, and you look at like someone like Cookie and and how many runs and hundreds he scored. You know, those things rack up just as a result of playing a lot of cricket for England. I mean, ultimately, if you don't play a lot of cricket, it's because you've been dropped. You know what I mean? And and you haven't performed. So if you can perform well enough to stay in the team, um, you know, these these numbers are going to rack up over time. I, I was, you know, I had this extraordinary start to my England career where I think I scored 10 hundreds in my first 30 test matches or something. So, wow. um, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, I, I was surprised myself by how many runs I scored early on. And then, um, 
And then it just, you know, you realise actually over time that opening the batting in international cricket is a hard thing to do. And there are going to be times where things get a bit barren for you. And that makes you savour it even more when uh, when you do get, get runs. I think for me, I, I mean, you know, I was coming towards the end of my career and um, I don't know, I think I was stuck on 1900s for quite a long time. And I, I always like the idea of getting to 20. I don't know why. Um and so, you know, my final season, I got I got a couple against the West Indies to go to 21, which was, you know, I, I felt a a pretty good, you know, I think for my own expectations as to what I was as a player, I was I was quite happy and proud about that. I never saw myself as like a, you know, England's best anything really. So, um, uh, you know, I thought I I got everything out of my career quite frankly. You say you didn't see yourself as part of the best something. I mean, a lot of people see you and Cookie, Sir Alistair, as the greatest opening partnership ever. So that's that's something. Um, and also, I mean, do you think he missed you? Do you think he began to miss you a little bit when you when you'd gone? Because he, I mean, he just, <laughs> you know, he couldn't quite find I mean, it for whatever reason. One, Greg, but... <laughs> yeah, but yeah, must, I don't know how much he missed have... me. I, I think he got oh, come on. pretty sick of the revolving door that followed me. I think that was probably true. Um, uh, uh, no, I mean, uh, because it's know, such a difficult job, got isn't it? Enough great things to say about Cookie. Actually, uh, I mean, you guys will be aware that. You know, he took over from me as captain, and it wasn't all, you know, rosy for him. It was there were some really tough times for him, and you know, some people went on the attack against him and blamed him for all sorts of stuff. Um, and through all of that, he, you know, he just did his thing. You know, he remained dignified and he kept churning out the runs. And um, you know, one of one of the great people, not one of the great. England players, but one of the great people as well, Cookie. And um, you know, I, I think we were we we were we were a very good opening pair, and I think we, you know, both of us were quite hard to get out at times. Um, in some ways, we played a little bit too similarly to be a perfect opening pair. To be honest with you, you know, both us we're both left-handed, obviously, and and both our strengths were too similar in a way. So bowlers if they were bowling well at cookie they're bowling well at me and vice versa um whereas early in my career when i when i opened marcus Truscothi, you know we were very different types of players and in some ways that created more problems for for bowlers so uh, it was just a great pleasure to play with both those guys and um you know we we had some pretty special moments on on the cricket pitch together cookie and i you racked up many, many a special occasion with many different players, but straight into the captaincy role of England, did you did you have your eye on that role as you were coming through the ranks and you saw Vaughan stepping to one side? You thought I could be the future England captain. Here, were you get branded the FOC in the changing room? Or, or uh, not really. I, I mean, chance? look, to be honest with you, I, and I'll be genuinely honest with you, I think when you're playing for England and you see the demands of the captaincy. I think it's quite a scary thing, actually. You're like, oh, you know, I'm not sure that I want to have all that responsibility that goes with it. Um, and, and of course, you know, one of my early experiences at Ashes 2005, the, the pressure the whole team was under, but in particular, Vaughan, like, you're like, wow, that that's unbelievable that he was able to uh, navigate his way through that. Um, so, and, and I think there's also that thing in the England team where 
it's very seldom you feel sort of secure enough in the team to to cover the captaincy, to be honest. Um, so I think there's that. And then the, actually the f- third thing is I've always felt like people that really cover the captaincy, really want the captaincy badly, generally they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They're doing it for themselves. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's an accolade they want for themselves. And, yeah. um, you know, in a lot of ways, I've always felt the, the best captains are are sort of happy doing their bit in the team. And if someone knocks them on knocks on their door and says that we think you're the right person to lead the team, then then obviously they take on that challenge. So, um, you know, I, I had many times where I had a little bit of a taste of it um, when others were injured, etc. Um, and you know, obviously there was a lot of talk between before that 2006 tour to Australia whether it was going to be me or Freddie to captain the team, and um, you know. Uh, in retrospect, it was probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me that I didn't captain that tour, quite frankly, because, uh, you know, yeah. anyone who's on that tour knows how difficult that was, both for Fred and the rest of the lads. So, um, you know, sometimes th- these things sort of land on your lap and it came at the exact right time for me in late 2008. You know, when you're nailing down a, a place in the England test side in 2004, obviously that lends itself to uh, being part of, what the plans are in 2005. So obviously you had no idea what that summer was going to entail at the start of it. You knew it was going to be a busy one though, for goodness sake, because I mean, there was, um, you know, trips, abroad. there was the West Indies tour, wasn't there in 04? And then uh, you had Bangladesh and then the Aussies in that ODI series. Yeah. That ODI series, a lot of people forget about it because obviously everybody remembers and they see the replays of 05 on the telly and watch the DVD with the Mark Nicholas and that kind of thing. But there's no chat about how important that ODI series was yeah. before. And you scored an absolute boatload, didn't you, in one of the games there. It was 150 odds off about 130 balls in, in one of the matches there. And uh, which, yeah, by that the was way, against Bangladesh, though. Yeah, but hang on. Nobody, <laughs> nobody, nobody had done that in, in an ODI before, have they, really? Because it was like, it's not like now where it's kind of, people yeah. expect that. You know, so that must have been a real confidence boost. And then you go into that white ball series against the Aussies, and that was like, you know, a serious kind of, they don't kind of set the tone a little bit because it was a yeah. bit spicy, wasn't it? And just try and explain to people, obviously we've got England fans galore listening to this podcast, but I, I don't think they probably really understand the significance of that. And we've had a couple of lads on before who played who played in 05 who talked about it, but if you don't mind, Strauss, just try and ex- explain um, what the whole picture was from that summer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, for me personally, just as a starting point, like, I had this great first year playing cricket for England. You know, we did well my first summer. Went to, to South Africa, scored 300s out there. Was player of the series. I, I, I came back to England early 2005 thinking I was like, uh, you know, the, the new Don Bradman. I'm like, I can't believe how good I am at this game. And needless to say, started back in Middlesex and, and went like 5-0-4-3. Like literally had the worst run of form of all time. And so by the time the, the, the cricket started, the international cricket started that summer, I was really struggling for form, actually. I was like, God, you know, I knew the, the Ashes was coming up. And um, and so that that one-day series, um, there were two elements. That, n- number one for me was like just trying to get myself back into some sort of form and feel comfortable about my game. Um, and for more importantly for us as a team, we'd had a lot of conversations ahead of that Ashes series about, 
sort of separating ourselves from past England teams against Australia. So, you, you know, there was that kind of slight inferiority complex and a lot of mental baggage that had built up over the years. And, uh, and so all the chat was about us really standing up to the Aussies, both physically and mentally, and um, showing that we weren't going to bow down to them, you know, almost like treating them like they were like the school school ground bullies and like well if you come at us we're coming straight back at you and there was one uh instance you might remember in in one of those one days against australia where uh matthew hayden sort of started having go at simon jones and myself and collie like came in and were like right in front of his face and and that was like a demonstration of you know if you go at us, we're coming back at you. And by the way, we're going to do this all summer long. So don't get any impression that we're like any England team you played against before. And, you know, it probably didn't make a massive difference to the Aussies, but for us, psychologically, it was a huge thing. Um, and, you know, huge credit to Vaughney and Duncan Fletcher because uh, it's easy to say that, but you need to you need to live that day in day out over the course of the seven weeks of that Ashes series and um, or, or all the way through the summer really and um, you know Vaughney did a brilliant job in a making sure we we continued doing that but also making sure that we didn't buy into this whole sort of kind of pressurized environment he kept it very relaxed and calm and let's have a bit of fun out there lads and pressure's all, all on Australia anyway and, and that was a, a good mindset for us to have. And you actually get into the ashes, and I mean, you've said all the, all that you said about it before. But for you coming in, you know, like you said, you've not been international cricket loads. I know it obviously probably felt like it with the success that you had earlier early on, Mister Bradman. Uh, but you know, you, you get you get into the middle of that series, and how did you feel about it? Because you said that you weren't that bothered about, you know, you'd never had these sort of visions of sort of playing for England and this kind of thing when you embarked on this professional cricketing journey. But when you see the queues outside Old Trafford and people going absolutely mad for it and you're on the front and back pages and the viewing figures are topping kind of 10 million every single day, what are you thinking? What Are you you soaking it in? We see it it at the moment with the Euros, Harry Kane looking round and soaking it in and drinking it in because he's clearly been told by people to drink it in. Did you have any idea to kind of do that? Well, I think, um, I mean, just to set the context, you know, my my formative years as a cricketer, you know, I was watching Australia just duff us up every Ashes series, you know, through the 90s and early 2000s. And, you know, some of the greatest cricketers of all time are playing in that Aussie team. So, you know... The thought of facing the likes of Warner, McGrath, and, all, and having watched all my favourite England players really struggle against them, like that was intimidating. Um, and then, of course, suddenly you find yourself in the in probably the greatest Ashes series of all time, and um, and as you say, like the whole nation getting behind us. Uh, so the, the the two things that really helped me through that, first of all, like. Being part of a team environment helps so much. If you think about being an individual sport and suddenly, I don't know, finding yourself at Wimbledon or, you know, in the the Open Championship as a young guy who's not inexperienced, I think that would have been too much for me. But because I was surrounded by, you know, people that were more experienced, who'd been there and done that a bit more before, uh, I could sort of feed off them. Um 
but also I, I think what it what it brought down to at the end of the day was like when you're out there in the middle, there's all this other stuff that's going on and the world's going mad. There is only one thing you can do, and that is watch that ball as it's coming down. Like that is the only thing that you can do. And um and so uh and I found actually that that series, as tough as it was, it there was such a buzz. You know, I, I just going out there, you know, you it's funny, isn't it? Because you, you don't sleep very well that series. You know, you worry so much about what might go wrong. But as you walk out in the in the middle and you hear the crowd going crazy and you know that you've got an opportunity to either set the tone or, you know, dig England out of trouble, you're like, come on, I want a bit of this today. Oh, and Brentley, I'm I'm coming at you. And like you just you get into that sort of um fighters mentality and um and that's what we all did over the course of those seven weeks. And it, it you know, it in a sh- in a way it was a shame that it was so early in my career because um you know in in so many ways that was undoubtedly the highlight of my career as well being part of that series that's that surprise well, doesn't surprise me a little bit but because you've had such success and the big one especially the big one for everyone within the Barmy army being the Barmy army podcast was 10 11 so yeah, would, yeah if if someone asked you if you had to choose you would go for 05 would you well, look, I think, uh, I mean, that's a, uh, 05, you will appreciate this. 05 was different. Yeah. It, you know, it was different. It captured the imagination of the whole public. It was like, you know, uh, I, I remember us going out uh, after we won the Ashes, you know, at the Oval that uh, after KP's knock and we went out on the town in London and there's like paparazzi outside nightclubs and stuff like that. And you're like, you know, we are a, bit, a big deal here. Um, and again, a little bit like when I found, thought I was like Don Bradman, like you come crashing down to earth very quickly after that, don't you? But for that, for those sort of couple of weeks, it, it was unbelievable. Um, whereas 10-11, I, I thought, um, you know, as far as cricketing challenges go, there is no doubt Australia winning in Australia is as hard as it comes. I honestly believe that. You know, so much easier for us to beat Australia in England than it is in Australia. And I think, um, well, you guys will all be aware, but for, for all those travelling England fans that have got so used to us getting drubbed by Australia every time we went there, 10-11 was, was redemption, really, for, for them and for us players, that you know, especially myself, who'd, who'd been part of that 2006 Ashes. So I think in terms of cricketing achievements, 10-11 definitely trumps 2005 but um you know it, that was more about that was more of a, a cricketing um achievement rather yeah. than a sort of i don't know there was something bigger than that in 2005 i don't know why but it, it felt bigger than just cricket to me yeah well it was it was ridiculous wasn't it it was absolutely yeah. ridiculous yeah. it was so so good i mean what we're talking about playing in front of a crowd obviously this is the barmy army podcast chris alluded to the fact that 10 11 is probably the barmy army's one of the highlights ever, I think, really. Mm. Well, it's got to be. I, mean, yeah, I, I say one of Chris. Is it? Is it really? Is it like the highlight? Yeah, the it is, but recently, nineteen World Cup, Ben Stokes. Yeah, mm. they, they, they've got to get close, haven't they? But ten, eleven for anyone that was on the tour, they would definitely say it's a highlight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, with with that in mind, then um, Andrew, right? If you've got playing in front well just playing in front of fans is different isn't it I mean yeah. we talked to counter cricketers usually we've got Jack Brooks on the podcast with us as well who, who sort of and he, he talks about this 
This is the closest that he can kind of get to imagining that because Brooks has played county cricket for 12, 15 years. This is the closest he can imagine getting to that is uh, when they played Rhodes' matches at Headingley, for example, on a Friday yeah. night on a T20, right? T20 Friday night when there's like, you know, 18, 20,000 in and it's bouncing. It's like he can't imagine having that for five days solid, you know, because of the high, the buzz, and all the music and the razzmatazz, I suppose, makes it slightly different pace. But he can't imagine that all day, every day, for five days, for, you know, 100 test matches like you've experienced. Because it's it's different, isn't it? And, yeah. you know, when you, you talk about going back after you've done that Man of the Series in South Africa and you first sort of winter away, you're coming back and you're playing at Lords. And it's April, and you've got your long sleeves on. You stood there, thinking, you know. And it's, yeah. it must. And I know, and it's no disrespect to County Cookie whatsoever because it's brilliant, but it is different, very, very different. And it must be really difficult for England lads to get back up for it. So, how did you enjoy it? Did you absolutely relish it playing in front of a crowd? I mean, hundred percent. Like you know, play, just what what you were describing there. It's like you know. The first time you fly business class, you know, you don't want to go back to economy, do you? And no. it's the same thing. Like the first time you play in front of a big crowd and you feel the energy that's produced by that crowd, you know, it just it just creates. A, I, I mean, you know, who knows what that energy thing is all about, but it, it creates a different feeling inside you. That doesn't matter how hard you try on a cold day in April at Lords, you, you're not going to recreate that. And um you know, I, I remember when I was just finished university, I went out and did a, uh, a winter's cricket in Australia playing club cricket to uh, 98, the 98 Ashes tour. And I was there in the crowd with the Barmy Army, like singing on the, you know, in Sydney, singing on the, all the songs and uh, just feeling like what it was like to be part of a crowd and enjoying the cricket, which was unbelievable. Um, and, you know, that I think that was when Goffey got his hat trick and stuff like that. It was a great, it was a great test match to, to be a part of the crowd. But then obviously when you're on the pitch, you have this sort of slightly weird thing where that, you know, you really want to connect with that energy, but you can't, you can't let it rule you, if that makes sense. So you, you sort of find yourself in that sort of little slightly tricky situation where if you, if you hit a couple of boundaries off someone and the crowd are going ballistic and the Barmy Army are chanting, you're like, I want to hit another one. And you're thinking, well, just hold on. You can't, you know, uh, so it's interesting, but um, uh, you know, as you said, that 2010-11 series, but, but every away series that we played in, you know, that that support we got from the Barmy Army, and everyone says like a 12th man or whatever, it, it's just it lifts you at a time when often um, it's hard. You know, you're away from home, you're away from families, and you know, you might not be winning matches, and and you feel a little bit kind of alone and isolated, and so. To have all that support there for you, and you know, I'm sure other players have have said this, but you know, the Barmy Army support is kind of like it. It doesn't matter how well you're playing or otherwise; it's always going to be there for you, and um, uh, it it means a huge amount. Ne- never underestimate how important that is for the not just the, the, how well players play out in the middle, but actually their mental well-being as well. So, yeah, it's a very very special thing, and. Uh, and obviously, in particular in Australia, which we all know is a, a tough tour to go on. It is, and and it will be potentially very difficult this time around when the lads go over there with without England travelling fans. We would normally go in our numbers, but 
Um, we, we do want your thoughts on that a little bit, Andrew, about how they will, they will fare over there. But before we do, you are coined with one of the best Barmy Army songs ever with Strauss, our captain, We'll Take the Urn Home. Yeah. And we did take the urn home. Have you got we good did. memories of that song? Yeah, I mean, that. well, that whole trip was, you know, it was just such a... A, a special thing to be a part of and you, you know you think about the spring clear and all that sort of stuff and you guys you guys remember that boxing day at, at Melbourne where it starts off with 90,000 and by the end of the day there are only 20,000 England fans left like that was that was just the the most extraordinary days cricket that we ever ever played I think yeah. um, and then obviously into Sydney where we we thrashed them in Sydney by an innings and again like just Holding up that urn with all the Barmy Army still there, not an Aussie in sight. Uh, it was, you know, it was it was a very special thing for me. I, I think as captain, because you you are so invested in the whole thing and and you're living it 24 hours a day. But um, as I said before, like I just to feel, I mean, a to to see the the joy on the faces of the Barmy Army afterwards, like and everyone that made that trip, but also. Uh, we had this this incredibly special occasion after everyone had gone home that night where just the team and the, the support staff went out in, right into the middle of the SCG about four hours after the end of play and just sat in a circle and just chatted about our thoughts and reflections and memories of that tour and what we'll tell our grandkids and all that sort of stuff. And that that was my best moment in England show. It wasn't on the field, you know, it was obviously post-winning, but it was just like, you know what... Um, we don't talk about this often, but, um, you know, we all sacrifice a huge amount to to hopefully get into the England team and then hopefully be a part of special things. And um, and that was the sort of culmination of everything for me, actually. And quite frankly, post that moment, it was never quite the same again. You know, because I, I almost felt like we could never beat that. You know, that was as good as it would ever get for us. And so from that moment on, was like always trying to find what the next thing might be. And it, it was difficult to come by. It's kind of come a little bit full circle in many ways, isn't it? The support from the Barmy Army with um, the Ruth Strauss Foundation, in a way. Yeah. And the way that everybody has kind of bought into what you try to do with the foundation in terms of, you know, wearing all red and the players obviously fully got into that as well. Um, were you, you know, when you're kind of planning days like that and you're setting up a foundation, obviously in tragic circumstances, which you would rather have not happened at all, but you're yeah. trying to bring something positive out of it. And by goodness, you've done that, by the way. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And I think everybody who's listening just wants to say, I mean, fantastic. It's just, you know, oh, what, what the you. foundation does is brilliant. Absolutely. And you can explain that, um, you know, in a second. But when, how much heart do you take from the fact that everybody just, I mean, that that, that feeling a couple of years ago, isn't it, when, when, when you set it up, where everybody was wearing red and the players had red and, and it was just brilliant. How much did that, I mean, obviously brought a tear to your eye in many ways yeah. for many different reasons, but that was that was fantastic. If you can yeah, use the word was. fantastic in a circumstance like that. And it's funny, isn't it? Because the, the cricket world's a, a strange world. Like, you know, obviously there's a lot of rivalries there and, you know, a lot of politics and all that sort of stuff. And um, But actually it is an incredibly close family. People that love cricket, um, generally good people. And... Um, 
And I certainly felt that warmth and that support um, at a time that I really needed it. You know, that, that was sort of, you know, that first Red for Ruth day was six months after Ruth died, obviously coming to terms with that, that new life that myself and my boys had. Uh, try, as you said, trying to set up a foundation in Ruth's name that was going to try and with attempting to keep her spirit alive and obviously, you know, help people that were going through something similar to what we went through as a family. Um, and so just experiencing that first one, like I, I was, of course, you know, again, we weren't sure how it was going to land with people, to what extent people would buy into it. And so uh, to see everyone turning up in their red and to to feel that incredible wave of warmth, you know, I think it was a real warm kind of like, you know what, we're here here with you, Straussy and the boys. And um, it motivated me to to push on with the foundation and for us to, you know, obviously take it to the next level. Um, and, and, you know, obviously it goes without saying, I'm so incredibly grateful for the support that you guys in the Barmy Army are giving us. It's um, because obviously, you know, when you start a foundation, yeah, you can do one day, but you've got to keep going. Uh, and if yeah. you if you're able to help one person or one family, you want to help ten families, and um, and so it takes on a bit of a life of its own. And um, uh, and I know we're going to have to keep leaning on the cricket family for more support as as the years pass by. More than willing to provide it, I'm absolutely certain of that. In terms of the the purpose and the long term goals of the Roosters Foundation, what. I mean, you say it's not just one day. Of course, it's not. It's, no. you're, you're working tirelessly every single day, aren't you? Um, and and you've got a team of people as well who are working tirelessly. I mean, you have to because the scale's so massive. But in terms of what the long term goals are um, for the Rooster House Foundation, what would you like to see? What would give you the most kind of pleasure from? Yeah, I mean, look, there, there's two aims to what we do. So that you know, on, on the one hand, there's the sort of the research into non-smoking lung cancers, which is obviously the cancer that Ruth had. And uh, we need to play our own small part in, in making sure that people are focusing on, on non-smoking lung cancer just as much as they're, sm- they're focusing on smoking lung cancer. Um, and because it's a small, you know, cancer that not so, not that many people have, the, the research money tends to go elsewhere. But the, the main focus really is, is this providing support for families when facing the death of a parent. Um, and we're talking about like 40,000 plus kids every year in this country who are under the age of 18, they'll lose a parent. Um, and so, you know, that's a, t- that's a hugely tough thing for any family to go by, uh, go through. And, um, you know, my own experience and, uh, and our experience with Ruth was if you, if you have support before the parent dies, you can you can pave the way as well as you can possibly can for what's to come, and you can be prepared for it. And you know you can put the kids in a place where they're in the best possible uh, frame of mind, or they have the, the the right possible support structure to to allow them to go on and have really rich and fulsome lives on on the back of losing their parent. Um, and so we know that. That, that support's not provided, really, by anyone. And so that's our job, to try and help those 40,000 kids every year that are facing the death of a parent, help the parents themselves as they prepare for it. Um, and so we're going to do that through counselling support directly through the foundation and then also uh, a training programme to train 
healthcare professionals and hopefully teachers and other people to be able to provide that support in different settings as well. So big, big plans, big ambitions. It's going to cost a lot of money, uh, which is why we we obviously need to keep raising money. Um, but you know, hopefully we are, we are supplying or we will be supplying a service that currently is not there for people. Big big fundraisers, uh, Straussy. Come on, hit us, hit some of our listeners with stuff how we can go about raising some cash um, for the uh, Ruth Strauss Foundation. Yeah, well, I mean, look, so, you know, if you're desperate to to support us today, then the obvious thing to do is just to go to our website, RuthStraussFoundation.com, which will give you all sorts of information on what we do as a charity, um, but also ways to, to donate and, you know, potentially if you want to raise money on our behalf or whatever, or take part in a challenge or whatever, that, that there are ways of doing that. And then, of course, the Red for Ruth Day that's coming up uh, very soon. Uh, the India Test match at Lords. Uh, Red for Ruth Day is going to be the thirteenth of uh, of August. Uh, there's all, you know, that's going to be a massive day again, and there'll be ways for people to sort of text to donate. There'll be some great auction items. Um, we, we were absolutely flabbergasted last year at Old Trafford. I think we raised just just shy of nine hundred thousand uh, pounds from that Test match, and obviously. We'd be desperate just to push through the million pound barrier this year. So that's coming up. We're 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 currently. I was going to say losing our hair, but obviously that's not relevant to me. <laughs> that's all gone. But uh, you know, it's it's a stressful time to sort of getting everything organised. But it's going to be a great day, and uh, and with a potentially a full crowd there as well. It's going to be really special and uh, and and a good way to sort of reconnect everyone with our mission and what we're trying to do at the foundation. Absolutely. I mean, we'll look, it makes supporting that day, Greggy, um, at the um, Sixers at Great Portland Street. We're running an event for the Barmy Army to get down and sing some songs and watch it together for the for those that aren't lucky enough to be at Lords on the day. So we'll be supporting throughout oh, the summer, but also into the Ashes and then um, into the West Indies as well. So I'm hoping for a, a, a long, loving partnership where we raise lots of funds for the Ruth Strauss Foundation on tour. Sadly, we might not all be there at the yeah. Ashes, but we'll all be watching it. So, Andrew, before we let you get on with your day, have you got any thoughts on how that series might fare for England? It's obviously a very tall order, especially with no fans, but more more so it's, it's um, on the field as well. It's always going to be a tough a tough yeah. place to go Australia. Well, I mean, if you look at it right now, you know, there's all sorts of things that are adding up against us, if I'm honest with you. You know, I think no fans don't underestimate what that, how difficult that is. Mm. Then also potentially no families for the kids, uh, for the, yeah. the kids, for the players. Um, you know, I think that's a, that's another tall order. Yeah. Um, and then just what we know about those Australian conditions is how tough it is for the top order in particular. So the Australian batting line, uh, bowling line, is very strong. Um, and so, you know, those those England batsmen at the moment that are all sort of fighting for their place in the team, we really need to see them gain some form over that India series. England need to win that series, I think, quite convincingly. And and we need our, our best bowlers to be fit and available for Australia. So if you think about it, someone like Jofra in Australia is going to be crucial. I mean, we've got some good young bowlers coming through now, haven't we? You know, the likes of... Yeah. Uh, Ollie Stone and Ollie Robinson, and we still got Broaden and Anderson and Wokesy. Like you know, our bowling lineup's not looking pretty good, but it's going to be a battle of our batsmen versus their bowlers. I think that will decide the outcome. Um, you know what? Either way, it's going to be exciting. And um, just talking about um, quickly about Joe Root as well, because I think actually 
mean, we're big fans of him. Listeners to this podcast know that me and Chris have a bit of a link to him, right? Both from Sheffield and that kind of stuff. So yeah. it'd be unfair for us to give any kind of opinion on how Joe's doing as, as a captain and a batsman. But what a winter he had, right? How difficult is yeah. that? Just put it into context to go and score the sheer amount of runs that he did in Sri Lanka and, and uh, in India. Yeah, well, look, I mean, ultimately, if it was easy to do, lots of people would do it, and, and very few do. Uh, Ruti is, uh, you know, one of the... Uh, look, I, I think he's the, the best play, England player I've seen by a long way. Like, just, the, I think he's... His temperament, his technique, his method of scoring, his cricketing intelligence are all off the chart. Um and you know what? Like I was lucky enough to have quite a lot to do with him when I was director of England cricket. You know, there is no one that cares more about English cricket than Ruti. Like it's true, and, and so that he lives and breathes that captaincy. He, he, he understands his responsibilities, and at times, I, you can see how hard it is for him when England aren't winning. You can see it like just the the frustration and the 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 will to win. Um, and so sometimes, you know, he, it's hard for him to carry that around with him all the time. But um, I think he's done a phenomenal job um, at a at a tricky time for it, it for the test team, isn't it? Like there's been a bit of a sort of transition period and young players coming in and um, uh, and whatever happens, you know, whatever happens over the next twelve months or eighteen months, Rooty's going to go down. I think as one of, if not England's greatest players, and. And he will, you know, he'll be England's longest serving captain by country mile. And, and that says a lot for him as well, that, um, you know, almost having the the resilience to keep going through good times and bad times. So a, a great guy um, and a great servant to English cricket as well. Root our captain. It's got a ring to it, Chris, hasn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Bring the air now. Nicking your song, Strauss. Um, <laughs> repurpose, so- not nicking, repurpose. <laughs> repurpose, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, I was going to say thanks so much, um, Andrew. It's an absolute pleasure. Top man um, for coming on and, and just sharing a few uh, things with us um, around your career and around the foundation. And um, I, I hope that uh, Red for Roof Day is just as magical as it was the last time around. And I'm sure it will be even more so because it was, it was great. It was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. So, um, all the all the best with uh, with that and a busy summer ahead. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, no problems. And just one thing from me, I just say like just, and you'll do this anyway. But just just never underestimate how important you guys are, not just for the English cricket team, but also just for the game of cricket. Full stop. You know, it, it's it's a way of differentiating cricket from other sports. You know, the the the, the way you do it, the humour, the the undying support. It, it it's brilliant. Um, and you know, we always try and show our appreciation as players, but we can never do full justice to it. So, you know, well done, guys. Keep going. And there are plenty of great times for English cricket coming up around the corner. Wow. Thanks, thanks, Straussy. From everyone at the Barmy Army, it's been a privilege to have you on. Thanks, mate. Cheers, guys. Absolutely thanks so pleasure. much.
Sports Social Podcast Network.